Today we continue our series on love and hate. Last week we dove into whether it was okay to hate. Usually we think either Christians shouldn't hate, we should just love everybody, or we think Christians should hate, but it should be bad people or wicked and evil people. We found neither of those are quite right. Hate is fine as an emotion and has important things to say to us, but when it sticks around it becomes bitterness and then we become the evil people. My favorite part was walking through how we deal with conflict. Sometimes we are like sharks. Uh, We destroy everyone and everything along the way to accomplishing our goals. That's not the kind of life God calls us to. Instead, we lay aside our destructive bitterness like Jacob and Esau. Two brothers who had years of hatred between them found a way to put aside their differences and embrace one another. Now we move from the necessity of hate to loving how God loves. The verse we are going to focus on comes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, perhaps the most challenging section in all of Scripture. This is Jesus' command regarding retaliation and love for our enemies. Hear now God's word from uh, Matthew chapter 5, and Quinn is going to read that for us this morning. Quinn? You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the evildoer. But ma- excuse me. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, you give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, you also go the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who prosecute you, so that you may be your children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do you even, do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and your sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I invite you to join me in our response. Uh, The word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And if you'll join me in our prayer of preparation, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Quinn, you may be seated at this time. <laughs> there's, it's going to be a little while, all right? Ready for the journey? Here we go. Uh, there's a story from a few years ago about a 13-year-old girl uh, who gets bit by a shark. Uh, She lived in New Zealand, and the attack happened while her family was out on a camping trip at the beach. Now, this young girl wanted to remain anonymous, so we'll call her Joy for this story. Joy had gone for a swim with her friend when the tide was really far out. She was only in waist-deep water when she essentially walked right into the shark. This might get a little intense for some of you, so be warned. She says the animal was so powerful it was like, walking into a freight train. The shark 
bit into the side of her, a few inches above her hip, and was thrashing back and forth. She describes it like the way a dog gets a bone and shakes it back and forth. The reason the shark is doing this is because it wants to drag her under the water. She says it happened three times. She was knocked down and she got back up, knocked down again and got back up. But the third time she swallowed a lot of water and she realized that she might drown. That's when she says it became like hand-to-hand combat. She hit and scratched and punched and did everything she could to get the creature off of her. And it worked. Whatever it was, it was enough to make the shark stop trying to drown her and it let go of her stomach. She hobbled toward the shore and sent her friend to go and get help. A chunk of skin was missing. She had two big puncture wounds and at a certain point she just couldn't walk anymore so she laid down in the shallow water. Some fishermen came along and saw her. They grabbed her and carried her onto the beach. Her parents finally arrived and drove her to the local doctor's office. It's not a hospital, it's this tiny medical office. And the doctor did what he could. He cleaned the wound, stitched together the skin that was left and gave her a tetanus shot. And the doctor, he tells the parents this. He says, she might act a little bit strange tonight because she may be in shock. And he tells the parents to ignore their daughter and that she'll be fine. Now that's a big deal because of what happens next. Joy's mother remembers the doctor essentially saying, kids can get a little extreme about this stuff, but everything's okay, just ignore it. The family packs up, they head back to their campsite and go to sleep in their RV. This is all all on their vacation, remember. So Joy is in a lot of pain, and everyone is laying down to go to sleep, and as she goes to lay down, she begins vomiting. It's blood and something else with it. She doesn't know what it is, but she feels like her body is on fire. She wakes her parents up and tells them this and that she feels like she's burning up, and they tell her, go back to sleep. You'll be fine, just like the doctor said. All night long, she's vomiting. She's feeling feverish. She starts to struggle to breathe. Later on, they found out what was happening. The shark had bitten through her bowel, and it's leaking into her stomach, essentially poisoning her. She is developing sepsis and bleeding internally while her lungs are filling with liquids. So she wakes her parents up again, middle of the night, and she tells her mom, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And her mom tells her, mind over matter, hon, stop your hyperventilating. And I know that seems awful that her mother would say that, but in truth, her daughter did often hyperventilate at school performances and things like that. But Joy is starting to get desperate. After trying to go back to sleep one last time, she wakes her parents and tells them, I'm dying. And they tell her to go back to sleep. Now, some of you have teenagers And how very like teenagers to say the most extreme things like, I'm dying. I mean, how many out there have heard their teenagers say that at least once? But Joy, she has no alternatives here. She can't take herself to the hospital. She's totally dependent on her parents, and they simply won't listen to her. The doctor said, after all, that she might get extreme and to just ignore it. By the morning, their daughter was very pale, and she was struggling to get enough air in, her, in and out of her body. Finally, her eyes 
rolled into the back of her head, and that's when her mother finally said, we have to take her to the doctor. So they piled in and they drove off to save their daughter's life. I want you to consider for a moment what it must have been like for that daughter to do everything she could to explain to her parents how sick she was, how close to death she was, and to have her parents not listen to her. After falling into a coma and weeks in the hospital, Joy did survive, but it could have been very easy after surviving all this for her to hate her parents, to become embittered because of how they treated her at such an important moment in her life. And for the parents, they loved their daughter and yet nearly killed her by the way they treated her. You could certainly defend them. The doctor told them to ignore her. But we expect more from parents, don't we? Yet this is two loving parents, what they did to their child. It almost makes it seem impossible that we would treat our enemies any better. Think about it. If we can hardly figure out how to treat our own children, who we love, how can we hope to love our enemies? Matthew chapter 5, as I mentioned, is from the Sermon on the Mount. It's three chapters of some of Jesus' most famous teachings and sayings. It's longer than any other set of teachings by Jesus. And as both the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, and the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven. Along the way, we come to this passage that is perhaps the hardest sayings of all. One is don't retaliate against those who hit you or steal from you. And the other is love your enemies. Let's look at each of those for a moment. The first command is don't retaliate against those who hit or steal. Are we really not supposed to do that? Should we not hit them back or at least try and stop them from stealing from us? So one thing to remember here is that Jesus sometimes speaks in hyperbole. He is saying something extreme, not because he wants us to literally do the extreme thing, but because he wants us to reconsider what it is that we value. Here Jesus says, don't follow the law, which said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That was legalized vengeance. They do something to you, and whatever it may be, you get to do it right back to them. This was the law all over the world. It's even found in the Old Testament. But it just didn't work. As Gandhi would say, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. So Jesus proposes a different way. Instead of retaliating, instead of fighting back, just give it to them. In Jewish history, we see what happens when people keep fighting back. Eventually, the Roman Empire has had enough from the Jewish revolutionaries and decides to send in the army, destroy Israel, and kill thousands. Jesus is saying, instead of placing a high value on your dignity, your possessions, and your wealth, how about you put relationships above all other things? Regard possessions as nothing and people as everything. Be unselfish. Love the people. Then he goes beyond even this. The Old Testament didn't exactly teach to hate your enemies, but people understood that a pious, holy person would hate the enemies of God. They would think, if you're God's enemy, that makes you my enemy. So if I fight God's enemies, that means I'm on God's side. 
when Jesus says to pray for your enemies. And by the way, he does not mean pray for your enemies. He does not mean by that that you can pray for your enemies to drop dead. That just doesn't (laughs) count, people. Jesus is proposing something truly radical here. Don't just take care of the people you love or the people you know. Be perfect like God. Be merciful. Be gracious toward everyone. It seems impossible to do, doesn't it? We can hardly get it right when it comes to the people we love. How can we get it right when it's people we hate? Despite how difficult it may be, let me try and make a case for at least trying. There's a reason we don't just show love to the people we love, but try to even love our enemies. For some, it's good enough to say Jesus said to love them, so you want to do it. But others of us need a little more convincing. We need a different kind of persuasion. So how about this? A social scientist named Arthur Brooks says you don't have to love your enemy because it's a civic duty. He says do it because it will benefit you personally. Yep. You can help others and help yourself at the same time. If we show love to our enemies, two good things happen right away. One, we are more persuasive. We can convince them of our own position. And two, we are happier people. Imagine for a moment you are discussing something and the other person holds the opposite position from you. You could either show them contempt Or you could show respect and show them appreciation. At the end of the day, which one makes you happier and proud of who you are? Showing disdain or respect? And the answer, of course, is respect. We like ourselves more when we are good to other people, even people we vehemently disagree with. So Jesus says to love your enemies, and it turns out you'll feel better about yourself if you do that. There is a potential benefit to you. If you get revenge, if you knock out their tooth because someone knocked out yours, you actually feel worse. Revenge hurts you in the long run. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, what does it mean to love my enemy? Do I let them hurt me and hurt other people? Do I let my enemy literally take all my stuff so I am homeless? I think I have the answer to that. In the Old Testament, the word for grace, hesed, is usually translated kindness or loving kindness. It actually means to stoop or to be inclined. It's the actual act of of assistance you give to another person. God helps us out, so we literally turn toward others, stoop down, and serve them. But in in the New Testament, when we say grace, which is charis, we are usually referring to the unmerited favor of God. That means we don't do anything to earn God's love. God just loves us, period. But watch this. Grace comes from the word joy. We can't see that connection in English, but to live in grace means to live with joy. It is the act that accompanies joy or a state causing joy. When we are kind to another person, we experience joy. 
Imagine someone is stealing from you and you tell them, no, you can't steal that from me because I am giving it to you. The power is removed from that person to do evil to you. Instead, your love, God's love, comes through and you are filled with joy in helping another person. The very best of our Christian faith doesn't mean we stop people from harming us or others. It doesn't even mean we stop people from doing evil. The best of our faith means we let the love of Christ shine through our lives. I want to end with a clip from a movie called The Mission. It's a story of a Jesuit priest who builds a mission in the 1740s in the jungles of Argentina. A man by the name of Mendoza, who is played by Robert De Niro, is capturing the native peoples and selling them as slaves. At one point, Mendoza, he ends up killing his half-brother and he spirals into depression. And the Jesuit priest, Gabriel, tells Mendoza to undergo penance, to make up for his evil actions. Gabriel, played by Jeremy Irons, has Mendoza trek miles up a waterfall to the mission amongst the native people that Mendoza had previously captured and sold as slaves. He is carrying all his armor in a rope sack up the mountain. Be warned, there are native peoples that are not wearing very much clothing, but uh, let's watch and see how these people respond to Mendoza's act of penance. Here it is. Are you willing to free others from their burdens like that? The very end of this movie displays a verse from scripture. It says, John 1, 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Will you let the light of Christ shine in your life? Will you live a life a loving kindness toward others so your life is filled with joy? It may seem impossible to love your enemy, but you can do it. The light of Christ is in you. So take heart. Christ has overcome the world. Amen?